an amazing hymn that is, Ben. Thanks for picking that for us. Such a reassurance of our position, our standing in Christ today as we come. Uh, We're looking uh, at a standalone sermon this morning uh, relating to the baptism. And I'm calling it Model Christians, basing it on 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 to 10. So I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading at verse 1. If you're using the church Bible, uh, it's on page 1186. 1186. First Thessalonians 1 and verse 1. Let's look at God's word as I read it to us. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen. This is God's word. Let's just have a moment of prayer so that I have understanding how to explain it and that your hearts have understanding how to receive it. Let's just commit this time to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your true and living word. Thank you that it comes to us with the assurance that every promise that it makes is yes and amen in Christ. Father, whatever we've had to experience or endure this week or wherever we've been led in the journey of living with you so far, we ask that you would help us even in this moment. I pray for clarity to be able to speak for the anointing of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would be receptive to what you would say to our hearts and minds, that we too might become models of you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So introduction, a model church. Several years ago, I was attending uh, a Christian assembly, large Christian assembly, and I bumped into a colleague of mine, a ministerial colleague from uh, the days when we used to be together in Bible college. Hadn't seen him for a number of years, and so I was just inquiring how he was, how his wife and children were, and particularly how things were going in the church. And his response both surprised me and encouraged me. Uh, He said that not only were the church business meetings, this is the Baptist church, because you wondered, I've lost all senses in a moment. Uh, He said his church business meetings 
were times of worship. And that his deacons' uh, monthly meetings were such great times of fellowship that he felt like giving them all a wee cuddle when they left. Of course, you recognize that if you've ever been a deacon or an elder from every meeting you've ever attended or from any church you've ever been part of. But isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing that Paul, a pastor, an apostle, can think of the church and say, we give thanks always for all of you. We give thanks for all of you. Uh, Our pastor, Paul Rees, is on his holidays just now, and as he bakes himself in the Cypress sun, I wonder if he's thinking back longingly to every single one of us and going, oh, I'm just so glad that they're in the church that I'm pastoring. Well, I hope he is, because it would be great if all of us can encourage his heart like that. This is certainly how Paul and his companions viewed the church in Thessalonica. This church had been planted by Paul and company. Um, Silas and Timothy at least were with him on his second missionary journey. As he travels through Asia Minor, you can read about it in Acts 17. It was a church that faced persecution right from the beginning. And it's possible that Paul and his companions were only in the city for um, three weeks, maximum of three weeks. Some commentators think it might have been longer. But if you look at Acts 17 and 2, it mentions three Sabbaths. And if you take them as successive Sabbaths, i.e. the Saturdays, Paul had gone into the synagogue to preach the word of God. Persecution breaks out and he has to move on. So um, it may have been three Sabbaths over a longer period of time, but it's possible, and I think personally highly probable, that he was there for less than a month in which he sowed the seed of the Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. It took root, bore fruit, and grew into a church. Now, if you and I were to be involved in church planting, I'm not sure that we would plan to be there for three weeks and then move on. Surely we'd be anxious about the people who had become Christians. How would they get on in our absence? Would they continue to follow Jesus once we'd left? That's assuming that three weeks was long enough to see anyone come to faith in the first place. Yet that's the church birthed in Thessalonica. Because they had to leave the city in a hurry because of persecution, Paul sometime later sent Timothy back to find out how they're getting on and was greatly encouraged by the news that he received. The Christians in Thessalonica Thessalonica, uh, were remaining firm in the faith and were unified But they did have some questions about their new faith, and Paul, uh, since he was only there for three weeks, hadn't had time to answer all their questions, and other questions had arisen in the meantime, not least about the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul writes this letter and his second letter to them to answer their questions and to commend them on their faithfulness to Christ. Now, in many ways, many ways, they are a model of what church is or should be. And a model church is, of course, only as good as its constituent individual parts. And so that's why I want to look at our passage today under the title, Model Christians. Please note, verses 1 through 4, that model Christians are, first of all, chosen by God. Model Christians are chosen by God. However else you might feel about your response to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, You did not choose him. He chose you. 
Salvation is the work of God. Now, from our perspective, it involves a process which includes me making a choice about it. But from God's perspective, salvation is something that is a completed, settled work in eternity. In verse 4, Paul tells his readers that he knows that God has chosen them because, look on in verse 5, they have responded to the gospel message and have seen their lives radically and dramatically transformed and changed by it. And I want to offer lots of assurance today for people in this room about those who maybe particularly are not sure whether or not you're saved. Um, There are evidences of salvation that we will look at in God's Word. Now, the the doctrine, uh, it's called divine election, and it's a subject that perplexes many, confuses most. It even, sadly, divides others. But I want us this morning, just briefly, as we look at the rest of the passage in its context, to see if by grasping what the Bible teaches regarding salvation, we can gain a better understanding of the doctrine of election. Elsewhere, from what we know that Scripture teaches us, we know that salvation, the plan of salvation, was in the mind of God before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, uh, 4 through 6. If you want to look there, you can. The words will come up on the screen. Uh, Let's look at these words. For he, that is God, chose us in him before the creation of the world. So we know that's true. It's in God's word. But look to see why he chose us. He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and goodwill to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one that he loves. So salvation is a gift, but it's God's idea. He purposes it. He fashions it. He works it. Second Thessalonians 2 and 13. But we all ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Jesus himself, speaking in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And he goes on to say, and I chose you to bear fruit. I chose you to produce the fruit of the kingdom, the fruit of the Spirit, in and through your lives. But please note, that it is not God's love that saves the sinner. That's universalism. Since God loves all men and women, even those who finally reject God will come under His eternal judgment. It is by grace, not love, that you're saved. It is by grace. And you need to do something in order to appropriate all that God's grace gives you today. Ephesians 2, 5, verse 8 says that it's by grace that you're saved. Grace, I, I, as a young Christian, I don't know how about you, but as a young Christian, I, I used to get confused about what grace was compared with mercy. Uh, Paul elsewhere, as Peter does, says that it's not God's grace that gives them the gospel message, it's God's mercy that gives them the enthusiasm to be those who preach the gospel message. So what's the difference? Well, 
I think a simple explanation sometimes helps, and grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding something from us that we do deserve. You see, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, rightly, every human being that ever lives, rightly, is condemned by God, is judged by God, and will one day face the wrath of God. And rightly so, because we are sinners who have fallen away from Him in our inherent nature. But His mercy withholds from us what we deserve, judgment, punishment for our sin. And grace gives us something that we don't deserve. Salvation through Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life. Please note further that God chose us not because of worth, but because of his love. Romans 5 and 8 says it there. Um, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not his love that saves us. Note further, the gift of salvation is a divine prerogative but it also requires a human response. Again, in Ephesians 2 and 8, it is by grace that you're saved, but through faith. And there's a human element to appropriating what God has given in His gift. You must have faith in the finished works of what Jesus has accomplished for you. When Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica, they preached the Word of God in the power of God by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, some people put their faith, that is their trust, in the living God, and they turned from their idolatrous way of life. Many did not put their faith in Christ. Same word, same power of conviction of the Holy Spirit, same determination and effort by the preacher, but some did not hear it. Down simply to human choice, the Bible says no. Down to the prerogative of God to reach out in His mercy and withhold from those of you who hear this word that which you deserve and to impart to you something that you will never deserve but is the free gift of God to embrace. Notice the clear balance that this is a model or pattern for all people who come to a living faith in Christ. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God that brings about conviction of sin that in turn under the power of the call of God and the command to repent draws men and women into the experience that Jesus speaks of to Nicodemus as being born from above. John 3. The Apostle Paul sees the process as a supernatural cause and effect. In Romans 10 and 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Also in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 13, we've already read that, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God choose, chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. You see, it is confusing, it is perplexing, but as Christians, it's not to divide us. Warren Wearsby, 
in his little commentary on Thessalonians, makes a helpful comment in the way that each member of the Godhead is involved in our salvation. And that may clarify the issues of divine election for some of us. I've put up the full quote there. As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the world began. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. As far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved one Saturday night in May 1945 when I heard the word and I trusted Jesus Christ. At that moment, the entire plan fell together and I became a child of God. If you had asked me that night if I knew, I knew I was one of the elect, I would have been speechless. At that time, I knew nothing about election, but the Holy Spirit witnessed in my heart that I was a child of God. I began by saying that salvation from our perspective involves a process, but from God's perspective, it is something that is a completed, settled work in eternity. But I want you to note two things about how it affects us. It first of all affects us in the here and now, as well as secondly affecting us in the there and then. Uh, There is a form of Christian gospel that says that you're saved for eternity. You've got your ticket to heaven. Uh, you don't, it doesn't have to alter too much about how you live here on earth. You're going to heaven one day. Isn't that an assurance? But the gospel that's held out, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, affects us both now in the here and now, as well as in, in the there and then. I remember Ian Leach preaching a number of years ago, saying that it is neither steak on the plate while you wait, or pie in the sky when you die. It affects us both now and then. So how does it affect us? Well, the evidence of election and God's work in salvation is change. I know that's not a word that Christians are too happy to embrace, or at least the concept. But be encouraged, change is here to stay. And salvation means change. Salvation means change. The three fundamental and enduring qualities of the Christian life are these. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And they are the best evidence of salvation. And I think that we need to look at each other's lives. Other people are looking because they want to know evidence of whether or not the gospel which is such an incredible message, is actually credible. And the only way that that can ever be proved to them is when we demonstrate in increasing measure faith, love, and hope. I'm not talking, of course, about sinless perfection in this life, but I am saying that if a person is truly saved, i.e. one of the elects, there will be change and a progressive change at that. So the question to you and me this morning is, are we still growing as Christians? When's the last time that you could notably look in on your life and say, wow, I've moved on progressively in the sanctification of God, in the salvation process 
that for me is a process. When did you last look in on your life and say, I have grown so much in Jesus? I trust it's not more than a few days. But I detect, sadly, the reality is for many Christians, it's not weeks or months. It happened years ago. It happened years ago. Oh, I got saved when I was seven, when I was 15, when I was 21. And I'm now 70 or 80. Well, what's happened since then? Well, not a lot, really. I've gone to church and I've been faithful and I've read my Bible and I've prayed a lot. Are you still the same in personality and nature and character? Yeah, well, one day I'm going to be made perfect, aren't I? Yeah, but what about it affecting you in the here and now? There has to be evidence that shows that you're part of what God is doing. You see, faith must lead to works. James 2 and 14 through 26 addresses that issue for us. It's been said that we're not saved by faith plus works, but we're saved by a faith that works. And these works must be consistent with an active witness, both in word and in deed, to the reality of that saving grace actively changing us through progressive levels of sanctification and service. The older you get as a Christian, the more like Jesus you should become. The older you get as a Christian, the more active in the works of Jesus you should be. Faith must lead to works. And love is evidenced by our care of one another. Romans 5 and 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. We can't do this of ourselves. The source is God pouring that love out into our hearts. And then Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 9 about brotherly love. We do not need to write to you this model church with these model Christians. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The source of that strength of love is God. And God himself is their teacher. They love one another. And hope waits longingly for Christ's return. You see that in our reading this morning, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, then you will currently have no regard whatsoever to his return to earth as the judge of all men and the Savior of the true church. But the reality is, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, If you are born again, if you're one of the elect people of God, if you're a Christian, then you do live your life, or you ought to live your life against the backdrop of the reality that without warning, Christ may return, and that you will be caught up together with all true believers to meet him in the air. And that second coming of Christ is an enormous source of encouragement to all of us, but particularly to those who suffer, suffer persecution. You're holding out for the coming of Christ because you know that what you're enduring, imprisonment, confiscation of property by the authorities, it's not forever, so you're holding out for Christ's coming. Maybe you've got a health issue. 
It's not forever that you suffer this momentarily and brief trouble. It's not forever. You hold out. The the coming of Christ is a great source of comfort to us. Maybe you're suffering injustice or grief. Either grief by other people or grief at the loss of a loved one. It's not forever. The The exhortation, therefore, is to hold on. It won't be forever. In a day when even Christians put more faith and hope in scientific solutions and medical advancement, you know, it's sometimes difficult to raise the expectation of faith and hope in Christ's return. But if you're a Christian or are suffering just now, hold on. If you're not a Christian, watch out. Because there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of wrath. When Christ will come back and you will suffer the full penalty of what your sin deserves. If you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus for salvation before it's too late. If today you hear him speak to you, do not harden your heart, but come in brokenness and repentance to the foot of the cross and put your trust in Jesus. For today is the day of salvation. This hour is the appointed hour for you to step across the line and put your trust in the living God who wants to save you through Jesus Christ from that coming judgment. What a comforting doctrine election is. God calls us as sinners to turn from our sin and to follow Him. And please note that we're called to serve In Ephesians 4, uh, verse 1, Paul pleads with the Christian, saying, As a prisoner for the Lord, he's in prison, he's in a physical prison, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right from day one, this church in Thessalonica lived that life. And what a pleasure it brought to Paul's heart. There were examples in many ways, not only to the first century churches, but the 21st century churches as well. Look at the ways in which they lived this life worthily of their calling. They responded in obedience to the preached word. Verse 5, the gospel had been preached to them in power and those who belonged to the true church responded. What an amazing pleasure it is for any one of us, be it a pastor, a preacher, or just a a Christian who shares their, their, their good news story with other people on a regular basis. What an amazing pleasure it is to share the good news of Jesus Christ's gospel and to see people accept it gladly. Without argument, without contention, without opposition or rejection. That was this model church. Secondly, they followed the pattern set by the spiritual leaders. The authorized version of the Bible, the King James, as some of you will know it, unhelpfully translates this word as follower. They became followers of their spiritual leaders. The NIV gets it right here because it does mean imitator. It's an important disciple-making word that stresses a, a very serious message to us in the church about the role of mentoring in the lives of young and immature believers. Remember, salvation from our perspective is a process. And it is those who endure or persevere to the end who are saved. And young, new, immature believers need to respect and to be able to copy the lifestyles of older, wiser, maturer Christians. 
I remember some years ago, there was a bit of fad among some of the young people that would wear a what would Jesus do bracelet with the initials, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Uh, and they would, you know, every time the hand went out, they'd do, oh, what would Jesus do? Uh, well, one of the mentors in my Christian life is a man called Jim, lovely, godly old man. And, and if I ever wore one of these bracelets, it would be a case of what would Jim do? Because he was, he was an example to look up to and to follow and to emulate. And that's what all of us who are older Christians, we ought to be like that. We ought to be able to imitate those who are our leaders. Some of you will have heard me say this before. I'm not going to apologize for repeating it. You know, it is not enough just to win souls, to use an old-fashioned expression. Every newborn child of God needs, no deserves, a spiritual family in the local church where they can grow into maturity, learning to become a disciple who can share their personal testimony with everyone that they meet on a day-to-day basis. That's what's happening here in Thessalonica. Thirdly, they, were willingly, they willingly shared Christ's sufferings. You see, although salvation is the free gift of God, there is always a cost involved for us. The world, that is, non-Christians, non-believers, the world will respond to us in the same way that it treated Jesus. And that includes rejection and hostility, sometimes even or particularly from our families and our peers. But if we really reflect Jesus, then it makes the world a very uncomfortable place. And it will, unless it turns to God, it will turn against us. And the Apostle Peter says that if we suffer for belonging to Christ, then we should rejoice since we bear his name. And the fourth thing I want you to notice um, in this section is that they were consistent good role models for other churches. You and I are examples of what it means to follow Jesus. If you're a parent, your children have already looked to you and taken much of the way that they will behave as a Christian from your stance. If you're a Sunday school teacher, the young people have already looked to you to see how you ought to behave in and around church. If you're a church leader, you've already given an example of what Christian leadership is like and what being a Christian is like. You see, we already are examples. The question for us, what kind of example are we? Are we good examples or are we bad examples? I remember my dear old father, uh, been with the Lord for a long time now, but I remember as a man of, in his 60s cautioning me about the evils of smoking, dragging on his pipe one night, pointing the stem of it at me and saying, Son, this is an evil, wicked thing. Don't ever do this. <laughs> well, Dad. <laughs> now, people will actually catch more from us than we can teach them. They'll look to us as examples. We ought to be, while never in competition with one another, we ought to be trying to outdo each other in doing good, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, being generous, being fruitful with our lives. And we also ought to look to this model here as credible because they were credible as witnesses. The message rang out, we're told, 
Paul says, therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. That, the verb rang out literally means to sound as a trumpet. And it's no clanging cymbal or resounding gong, empty noise, as in 1 Corinthians 13. But when they sounded forth the good news of salvation, their message had a clear and certain sound to it because they had credible lives that backed it up. Jesus saves. Jesus changes you. And if you're an old, miserable, mumpy, groany Christian who says that sort of stuff, you're like my dad pointing the stem of his pipe, you've got no credibility to the incredible message you're trying to convey. Do you know there are two significant hindrances to gospel growth in Scotland? The one is a lack of numbers in God's people willing to share their faith, and that includes an unwillingness to be taught or trained how to share their faith. And the second is a lack of credibility in God honoring changed lives to support the truth of the incredible message of God's saving power. Many years ago, I did a church survey in a a medium-sized Baptist church in Scotland and discovered that the vast majority of its current membership came to faith because they were brought into membership by the personal witness of individual Christians in that church. There is a place for big evangelistic events. There is a place for evangelists to go out and do the work. But the most prosperous way of church growth and seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ is when you and I, as ordinary Christians, are willing to be taught to share our faith in communicable and also in, way, in ways, but also in ways that we are put the checks and balances in our lives to say, look, um, you say you're a Christian, but you don't behave like one. I've seen you in action, and you're not credible. Very difficult to tell you from anyone else in the world. We need to have that sort of, and Paul was doing that. This, this, is, this is hard work, folks. Discipleship is not an easy, easy task. Get your ticket to heaven and off you go. It's hard work. And we see this church finally that they were cautious in waiting. We've seen the sovereign purposes and the divine call of God in salvation. We've considered the responsibility of sinful humans to respond to the call of repentance, the resultant faith that expresses itself in loving sacrifice and obedience. And the final example of these model Christians is the expectant hope they display as they wait the return of Jesus to the earth in his second coming. The story is told of an old uh, shepherd in the highlands who used to every morning look out towards the sky and say, maybe today, Lord, maybe today. Does the thought of Christ's return give you great encouragement just now? For those of you who think I've preached too long, it couldn't come sooner. But seriously, does it? Does tomorrow need to happen for you? Does a week from now need to happen for you? Amidst the often divisive teachings and theories surrounding the return of Christ, there is one thing we can be absolutely sure about. He is coming back. He is coming back. There have been very poignant moments in my life when I said, Lord, right now would be a good time. I'm standing, looking open the open grave of a young person, and I'm going, now would be a good time. Lord Jesus, now would be a good time. 
so that the sorrow and the misery of the hurting family would be ended and we'd all be caught up to be with Christ in the air. When I see the injustice that some Christians have to suffer, now would be a good time, Lord. When I see the pain and the hurt that people are experiencing because of their medical condition, now would be a good time, Lord. Can we really testify to a daily or a regular expectation that today Jesus might come back from his, for his church? I have a sermon ready for this evening. If I don't have to preach it, I won't mind. If I show up to preach it and half of you aren't here, I won't think that there's been a secret rapture. I just think you're being lazy and you haven't come out twice. But think about it. Are you cautious in waiting? Hold on, for that day is coming. This church models to us what every Christian should be. They're born again. That is, they're born from above. Nothing to do with their decision to follow Jesus. They're born from above. And they're humble servants who are imitators of the right people, including Christ. And they're credible witnesses of the gospel in their beliefs and in their behavior. Their longing in their everyday lives is against the backdrop. Their living everyday lives against the backdrop of Christ's return. I don't know how that's spoken to your heart this morning, but if you want to know more about becoming a Christian, I would like someone to pray with you about an issue that you're currently facing, then why don't you come forward at the end of the service after the baptism and speak to either myself or one of the elders who hopefully will come down and be here as a servant to you. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing good news that the gospel is. That since we are created in the image of the living God and yet have transgressed away from you in iniquity and sin, that you have chosen us in Christ to become your children. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. It's not a reward for anything that we could possibly become or have ever done. It's your free gift. Help us, Lord, to embrace it fully under conviction and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.